All right, good morning. That's true, Jesus is coming back, and we pray and uh, long for that day. If you were here two weeks ago, you had a rare treat. Wes had uh, our sound guys in the back play one of my favorite songs. Any, uh, any fans of early 90s country music, right? All right, we, okay, some of you, okay, well, he played a song from a band named Alabama, and Kyle, can we, can we throw that slide up? A song called, I'm in a Hurry. Those guys do not look like they are in a hurry, right, with those haircuts. They're just free and easy, taking life as it comes. If you don't know the song, it goes like this. If you enjoy Nails on a Chalkboard, you'll enjoy this. If you don't, I apologize. But it goes, uh, I'm in a hurry to get things done. Oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I gotta do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. Yeah, so there we go. There we go. Nails on a chalkboard, you're welcome. Sorry for that. Man, I love that song. It's so good, and it's true. Most of us are in a hurry. Most of us are in a hurry, but contrary to what that song says, I think more than a, more, more than, a, a lot more than us than not know why. It's because we're not content. It's because we're not content. Most of us don't know how to rest in Jesus. And we've been going through a series called Sabbath, finding rest in a busy world, and really just hammering home the idea that Jesus is our rest, and that we need to, we need to find our rest in him. But we don't know how to do it. We, we struggle to unplug, we struggle to slow down, because we haven't learned to be content with Jesus as our portion in life. Rather than receiving his light and easy yoke, we've been talking a lot about that from Matthew 11. Jesus says, I've given, I've given you a yoke that's light and easy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. It's light and easy. I will give you rest. When we talk about the yoke of Jesus, what we're talking about is the entirety of his word and his way of life. And so rather than us taking on his yoke and learning to how, how to be human, a new way to be human like Jesus, more often than not, we're, we're discipled by the world and culture rather than being discipled by Jesus and his yoke. And so rather than yoking ourselves up to the way of life and the word of Jesus, we yoke ourselves up to the teachings of the world and our culture or just our own personal ideas that we kind of just pick and choose from this, that, and the other thing and kind of build this whole worldview. And because of that, we never learn to be godly and we never learn to be content. Before we go any further, last week we said, how do we, how do we, read, Bible, how do we read the Bible for ourselves? And we learned that sometimes, as we're reading Scripture, not like a novel, we read it slow and we meditate, we turn words over in our mind, sometimes it's helpful to define or emphasize different words. And I think before we go any further, we'll find that it's incredibly helpful to give some definition to the word contentment. Right? If you've got a smartphone, you can do this real quick, define colon contentment, and it'll bring up a definition. And first off, we find out that contentment is a state of happiness and a state of satisfaction. And that's helpful. That's the noun form. But the word contentment also exists in a verb form, as in the sentence, he or she refused to be contented. Or I had a baby and she wasn't content ever, right? She wasn't contented by anything. So there's a verb form. And if you would auger down into that definition, we're told that uh, the verb form would mean to uh, to appease the desires of someone or oneself. Or what I really like 
to limit oneself in requirements, desires, and actions. So what does it mean to be content? It means to limit oneself in requirements, desires, and actions. And that is my favorite definition. That's my favorite definition. To be content or to practice contentment, I think, looks like limiting ourselves, our requirements, our desires, our action. I think based on that definition, I don't think it's off base to say that learning to be content or to practice contentment is to unhurry our lives, to slow down, to rest, to live unhurried. To be content is to limit our requirements to the yoke of Jesus and to allow his teaching and his way of life to shape our desires and our actions, to become godly and experience contentment through that godliness. I think this is a good working definition. But again, sadly, I think most of us have been discipled more by the world and our culture rather than the yoke of Christ. Contentment from the world's vantage point isn't so much about putting limits on ourselves according to what Jesus would say, but rather it says, indulge every and all and every one of your desires. So rather than than choosing to limit ourselves to the requirements and desires and actions according to the yoke of Jesus, the world says, indulge your desires, all of them. Just go after it, follow your heart. I hope you can see these are two very different paths to do life upon which to walk. Indulge your desires versus limit them according to the yoke of Jesus. Folks, the Bible is pretty clear that only one of these paths leads to life. Only one of these paths leads to that rest that we've been looking for, to that deep soul satisfaction that we were created to experience and crave. Only one of these paths leads to godliness with contentment. The other leads everywhere but there. Only one of these paths leads to rest. And so for the remainder of our time together, I want to walk down these two opposing paths with you. And I want to do that from 1 Timothy starting in chapter 6, verse 3. So if you have your Bibles and your phone or the black ones in front of you under the chairs, get them out. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. And as you're turning there, I'll just kind of set the roadmap for how we're, where we're going. I see two sections in this passage. There's really verses 3 through 5, which we'll look at first. And that shows us the path that doesn't produce godliness and contentment. So we'll look at that first, and then we'll move on to verses 6 through 10 and discover the path that does lead us to godliness and contentment. You say, well, why, why are we going down these two paths? We're going down these two paths because if you and I are going to receive Jesus as our rest, if we're going to be satisfied in him, right? We just sang, you're enough, Jesus. You've done everything, you're enough. I just want you. If we're going to receive Jesus as enough for us, as our rest, then we need to learn godliness with contentment. And this passage in 1 Timothy is going to help us do that. So let's read it together and then we'll unpack it verse by verse. Starting in verse 3, 1 Timothy Uh, chapter 6. It says this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things 
we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So firstly, firstly, Paul outlines for us the pathway that leads away from godliness with contentment. We discover in verse 3 that Paul says that you and I enter that path, we, we journey down that path away from godliness and contentment, contentment when we choose to contradict Christ and his word. I see that coming in verse 3. I've outlined it for you there. When we choose to, to teach or to live a life that contradicts Christ and, and his word, his yoke, what he said, and his lifestyle. We step onto that path, and if we don't turn off of it quickly, if we don't repent, in verse 4a, we discover that the next stage on that journey away from godliness and contentment is conceit. We become prideful. Verse 4a says that we, if we persist in contradicting Christ, so saying, no, he didn't say that, here's what he really meant here, and changing scripture around to fit our fancy, if we, if we continue in that, we become increasingly conceited, puffed up, proud, arrogant even. And rather than feeling a need to repent and return to the restful yoke of Jesus, we arrogantly choose to live out these contradictions and eventually we'll start to teach others to do likewise. We might, we might hear in the culture or we might say or even think if we're contradicting Christ, well, we might start to say things like, well, God was wrong here. He didn't really mean this. He meant something different and we'll tweak and, and change the scriptures a little bit reinterpret it, right? It's kind of the nice way to say it, but if it doesn't accord with the sound teachings of God or everything else that he, others, that he said elsewhere, we use scripture to interpret scripture, there's a problem. So we're using scripture, we're twisting it. Oh, God didn't really say that. He was wrong here. Well, actually, they were old and this is outdated and, and this is what it means to be good today. Here's what it means to be good, right? That, that was backwater and those people are dinosaurs, but here's what it means today. Or they might say, well, do this, not what Jesus said. And that's the arrogant cry of every person who has ever chosen to leave the path of Jesus and venture down a path that they've chosen to carve out for themselves in contradiction to what Jesus has clearly said in his word, to the model that he displayed for us as he lived his life, and to who he is as, as a good and loving God and Father. And if we persist down this path, choosing to reject and contradict the light and easy yoke of Jesus, eventually we will find ourselves in a place where conceit and pride begins to consume us. No one will prove us wrong. Perhaps you've met some of these folks. Maybe you're one of them. How dare you even try to convince me otherwise? You don't understand scripture. You're misinformed. How dare you, how dare you try and prove me wrong, right? And we discover that these folks who persist in contradicting Jesus and his word they no longer have the ability to listen to God's word, to his truth, to his reasoning. And instead, they find themselves craving controversy. Verse 4b. In verse 4b, we see that this path leads away from godliness and contentment and approaches its end. It doesn't find its end, but as you go down this path, you'll find yourself endlessly craving controversy or finding yourself drama is all around you, right? You're on social media and, man, you're just picking fights everywhere because those, those people are wrong and you're trying to tell them otherwise. Seeking out drama, 
amidst in controversy, arguing and wrangling over words, shouting down anyone who would disagree with your contradictory lifestyle, with your contradictory choices to those of the word of Jesus. And in verse 5, we discover the end of this path. Constant friction, a corrupted mind, and a deprivation of the truth. Paul says the path of contradicting Christ leads to friction with others and friction within yourself. This path leads us to a place where we only experience a general lack of peace in our life. We experience confusion because our minds have become become corrupted, or as the text says, depraved, corrupted. We can't perceive reality anymore. We're deprived of the truth. Our perception of reality is warped. And as we begin to live out our reality or our truth, as our culture says, in a a warped reality, we will begin to experience the consequences of doing so. And they aren't good, church. Constant friction, a lack of peace. It's the opposite of the rest that we're promised in Jesus. Now, I realize that that was a little bit a philosophical approach to take. And so I want to I give you an illustration that I think will help you kind of wrap your minds around what I'm saying here. My middle son, Graham, he learned to walk. He's five, he's five now, but he learned to walk when he was about eight years old. As a general rule of thumb, eight-year-olds, huh? Eight months. Eight months. I'm sorry, yeah, eight months. <laughs> That's why I use notes, right? Eight, he's five, not eight. He's five, and he learned to walk when he was eight months old. And as a general rule of thumb, eight-month-olds have a pretty tenuous grasp on reality, right? They don't know what fear is. They don't know anything. Along with that, he has a very active imagination to this day. But it was like super active when when he was that young and and into his twos and threes. And Rach and I began to become a little fearful because Graham sometimes would choose to live his truth, his imagination, right? He'd be on our bed and be like, Graham, what are you doing? He's like, I'm an astronaut. It's like, okay, buddy. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm running to the edge of the bed. Our bed's kind of high. It's like, I'm going to float off into space. He's like, no, bud, no, you're not. Don't do that. And we had to catch him multiple times because he was choosing to live in his truth and his imagination, which did not correspond to reality. You can see where I'm going here, right? This is what we're like when we choose to contradict the word of God. Our creator, the one who ordered and designed our life, we say, no, I'm going to do this, not what you say. Whether we like it or not, it doesn't matter what we say. Our loving father is there saying, don't do that. There are consequences that you cannot even begin to fathom, right? I'm an astronaut. I'm going to jump off the bed. Buddy, don't do that, right? And he used to kick and scream, what are you doing? I'm going to float. And out of love, we'd pick him up and try to correct him and explain you might be an astronaut one day, and if you're out in space, man, take at it. But in this world, there's something called gravity, and we love you, and here's reality. And that's what our Father says to us. I love you. Follow my word, my way. Take up my yoke, and the burden will be light and easy. Choose to contradict it, and the consequences are severe. The consequences will be severe. Rather than finding rest and joy and contentment in the one that you and I have been created Four, we will end up running after all sorts of different things, believing that we know better than our creator. We know what's going to give us happiness. We know what's going to give us that honey from the rock, but it ain't the rock, it's something else, right? Now, there are obvious cultural connections to make here. 
in regards to godliness and contentment that relate to things like gender, like human sexuality, like our personal identities. But I'll let you make those connections for yourself. I'll let you do that because we're going to go where the text goes. The text gives us a different example to walk down this path together, where sometimes we might contradict the teachings of Jesus. And it has nothing to do with sexuality or gender. It has everything to do with our money and our possessions. Here in Timothy, in Timothy's world, there was apparently a, a group of people who were treating godliness as a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. Their concern wasn't to receive Jesus as their rest, but it was to use Jesus to give them the thing that their hearts actually desired, right? They were indulging their desires, choosing to contradict God's word, to change it so that they could get what their hearts truly wanted, which was money. We're told that they they put on a show of godliness to get a following, and then they started to take up an offering so they could generate some coin, right? Apparently, it was fairly effective. The problem is, as they went through their teaching, there's some stuff that Jesus said that people don't like to hear. And so they tweaked and they changed a few things to make their message more palatable, to get a larger following so that at the end of the day, they could fill their bank accounts with people's tithes and offerings. It's really messed up. We see this happening today. We're not told exactly what they changed in their word. We could speculate a little bit. Maybe it was like some of the evangelists on television who teach something that's contradictory to what Jesus teaches, right? Hey, for a few small Small payments, 1099, you too can release the blessings of God in your life, right? That's garbage, right? If you pay me, then God will release health, wealth, and prosperity in your life. That's not how it works. God is not a genie. God is not a genie. And yet people teach these things. So that's maybe what they were teaching. We're not entirely sure. Perhaps you fall into that thinking sometime, right? Where you believe, if I just gave more, or if I just served more, or I did a better job at sharing my faith, well, then maybe God would release his health, wealth, and prosperity in my life. And you you, you believe this kind of formulaic thing. That's not how it works. It's about a relationship. Hopefully you don't believe that. That's called the prosperity gospel. We teach against it here. Hopefully you don't believe that. Maybe you're there, maybe not. If that's not your struggle, chances are that all of us can relate to what Timothy tells us about in verse 9 a desire to be rich. Remember, we're talking about a path where we indulge our desires or a path where we allow Jesus to limit our desires. I think all of us have had a craving or a desire to be rich. It's a fact of life. Verse 10 points out a craving for wealth and money. It's a temptation we all experience to leave behind the teachings of Jesus and contradict them and go a different way. For some, this might look like straight materialism. Materialism is a contradiction of God's word. Luke tells us in uh, chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus tells us there, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because contrary to what culture says and what you might think, your life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Friends, how much of the rat race and and restlessness that we feel in life comes from the constant friction we experience to believing that our life exists in the abundance of our possessions. Again, we're we're talking about Sabbath and learning to find rest in a busy world. How much of the restlessness and the rat race that we go down, the constant friction that we experience, come to us because of the payments that we've put ourselves on to buy certain things in our life? 
We might not say we disagree with Jesus, but does our life support what we say? You see, friends, we can say whatever we want, but our behavior, our behaviors reveal our true beliefs. We might not think that we believe contrary to Jesus' teachings here, but do our lives and our accumulation of stuff and the constant debt that we go into to get that stuff, does it support what we say we believe? Now listen, it's not, nice to wrong, it's not wrong to have nice things. It's not. It's not sinful to go into debt. There's responsible debt. The, the borrower is slave to the lender, though. That's also true, right? It's not sinful to have nice things. It's not sinful to have a lot of nice things. It is sinful and wrong to live as if we believe the worth of our lives exists in the abundance of our possessions. And it is wrong and unhelpful and not restful to treat our accumulation as stuff, as an escape, to try and make us feel better. If we just get that next thing, we'll feel better. If we just get this vacation, we'll feel better. It is wrong to run to things to try and get the comfort and security and identity that only our Heavenly Father can provide us. If you find you're running around always restless because you're finding that your possessions are actually possessing you, controlling you, more than you're possessing them, then you might have some repentance to do to get off a path that's contradictory to the light and easy yoke of Jesus that will lead you back to godliness with contentment. And you might be saying, well, what does that path look like? The path of godliness with contentment. Verses six through 10 show us. Simply, the path of godliness and contentment looks like allowing Jesus to set our perspective on wealth, on what it means to live a good life and allowing Jesus to limit, to restrain, to control our cravings and our desires according to his word. Verse six tells us where true gain is to be found in this life. And it's not in material possessions or wealth. Paul tells us that true gain is found in knowing God and being conformed in a greater and greater fashion to his image. You and I tend to look a lot alike who we hang out with, don't we? I think you'll find the more time you spend with God by the power of his spirit that has worked within you, the more you will begin to look like him. You will become more godly. It's just a fact. And it's here that we're told that this is where true gain is found, in your relationship with Christ as he makes you look more and more like himself. If, you've, if you're someone who's, who's known Jesus for a while, or you know someone who's known Jesus for a while, you'll notice the gain that they experience in their life. You'll be able to see it. You'll notice that there just isn't much that seems to get these folks down who have an authentic relationship with Christ. Sure, they might grieve from time to time. There will be tears. There will be discouragement. But as a general rule of thumb, those who have their hope in Christ always have that hope. There might be grief. There might be discouragement. There's never despair, right? There's always hope. There's always hope. A lady and her husband stopped by this week, just this past Tuesday from Springfield, Ohio. The way they told me the story was they were sitting in church a few months back and they got a shoulder tap from the Spirit that was asking them, hey, you should, you should commit to 88 days of prayer. And so they prayed into that a little bit more. Their names are Brian and Amy. 
They said, Lord, what do you want us to do? And they just got uh, a sense that God wanted them to go all throughout Ohio to the 88 different counties, go to the county seat and pray with the people of that county, ask them how they would need prayer. They're retired, and so they were able to do that. So they came here, and we were number 77 on their list. And they just said, hey, here's what we're doing. We'd like to pray. This is what we feel like God is doing. And I got to talk with them for about an hour. I'll tell you what, um, it was very clear to me through that conversation that they are folks who have spent a lot of time with Jesus over the years. Nothing made that more clear to me than realizing that as Amy came in, she, she couldn't see. She was blind. And so I asked her, I said, are you blind? And she said, yeah. I lost my sight four years ago. And she's, she's probably in her late 50s. She lost her sight four years ago due to some health complications. I said, wow, what's, what's that been like? Can you see anything? She said, no, it's, it's black, completely black. She said, it's been hard. It's been really hard. It's been a struggle for us. But more than, than talking about her, her suffering and the discouragement that she experienced from that, she shared the joy in Jesus that she had. And not just with her words. She was a joyful individual. It just kind of exuded from her. The craziest thing in that conversation, she said, we've been talking about having a quiet time a little bit. She said, I was having a quiet time the other morning with the Lord. And I just sort of heard in my spirit, he said, I've given you a gift. I said, I'll be honest with you. When I first heard that, I thought, are you serious, God? A gift? She said, I was resentful. She said, then I began to pray into that a little bit more and allow, allow the Lord to change my perspective. And she said, I'm praying for God to, re reveal my, or to return my sight. I'm believing that he can. I, I want him to. But it has been a gift in a certain way. She said, my life was crazy busy raising six kids and doing all of the stuff. And this has sort of turned all of the other voices and noise in my world down. She said, I can hear from the Lord more poignantly, more specifically than I ever have in my entire life. I'm living with more rest and more, more of a less hurried life just because I have to slow down. And she said, you know what? That has been a gift. Folks, that is an unworldly path, isn't it? That is a different perspective than the path of contradicting Jesus. Amy is on a path that leads to peace, not one of constant friction. Even if there's some discomfort, even if there's some grief, even with losing her eyesight, she is on the path of joy and true gain. She's experiencing the contentment of becoming godly, like Jesus. I'm confident that if I would have invited Amy here today, that she would tell you, rather than having, or that, that she'd, she'd rather have the spiritual sight to see and know Jesus, than to be able to see and not know him. I'm convinced that she would tell us that, because she knows and understands what true wealth is and what it truly means to live the good life. It's living the life with Christ, no matter what. And she's allowed Jesus to teach her about what it means to truly gain in this world and give her a new perspective on life. She said with me in our time, and I had the opportunity to pray with her for the Lord to re restore her sight. He didn't. But after we prayed, she said, you know, I trust God's timing. He is going to heal me possibly through a physical miracle or eventually when he raises me to new life with him. 
in the next life. Verse 7 tells us that this is the path that leads to godliness and contentment. Allowing Jesus to set our perspective in this same manner as Amy. This world is not the end. Naked we came into it, and naked we will leave it. See, so much of our hurry and worry in this life, that constant friction that we feel, the lack of peace, it stems from us losing our perspective. We end up hoarding and accumulating and creating bucket lists to check off, thinking wrongly that we only live once, rather than we live for eternity if we know Jesus. Church, don't live so short-sighted. If you're a believer, this is the closest to hell that you and I will ever be. And there will be exploring and adventures and all kinds of bucket list items to do with Christ in heaven. While you can't take your stuff with you to heaven, you can take your relationships with you that you center on Christ. And you can send rewards on ahead by living for Christ and choosing to build his kingdom here and now rather than your own. Indeed, the path of godliness with contentment looks like allowing Jesus to set our perspective on wealth and what it means to live a good life. Along with that, the path of godliness with contentment looks like allowing Jesus to shape and limit our desires. How should we shape them? How should we limit them? Verse 8 tells us, if you have food and clothing, be content and treat everything else beyond that as a blessing from the Lord. One author I read in regards to money and possessions he said this, he said, our, insti- our instinct is to worry about money, to hustle, to squirrel away enough money to conquer the fear we feel, but it doesn't work. It doesn't make us content. More money does not solve the fear we feel inside. It doesn't bring us the freedom we crave or the pre- peace and stress-free living we desire. He says, this isn't just a, a rich man's problem. Rich and poor worry all the same about money. Some of us worry about keeping it, Others of us worry about getting it. Some of us seek after it for security, while others seek it for survival. The more we try to hang on to our money, the more we fear the day when it will sprout wings and fly away. The reality is there is not a person in here who doesn't struggle to hold to the teachings of Jesus in regards to our money and possessions. We all, from time to time, can live with beliefs that are contradictory to what Jesus taught us in regards to money. We can crave it for comfort, for security, for survival, believing that if we just had a little bit more of it, then we would be content. The world tells us to indulge these cravings. Pursue your happiness. Go after the dollar. But Jesus invites us down a different path. Look at the birds, he says. Look at the flowers. Slow down. Stop hurrying. Stop and smell the roses. I love these flowers, Jesus says. I love these birds. I take care of them all. And how much more valuable to me are you than them? Don't indulge your desire for wealth, for material possessions. Restrict and limit those cravings. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his wealth. It doesn't. Don't chase after those things. We could fill in the blank in that statement with anything. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his wealth. 
Parents, your children's future does not consist in whether or not they get a sports scholarship. Employees, your happiness and contentment, your life does not consist in whether or not you get a bonus or a raise or a promotion. A man's life does not consist in you living out your own truth. A man's life, your future, your children's future, depends on you and them knowing Jesus and living not in contradiction to what he has said, but receiving his light and easy yoke and submitting your life under his lordship. A love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul says. What senseless and harmful things this disordered desire has plunged people into. It's a rat race chasing the dollar. It's a restless, exhausting endeavor. Senseless. Loved one, if you want to find rest in this crazy busy world of ours, then you need to allow Jesus to reorder your desires. Put him at the center of your desire. Seek to follow him and you will gain by experiencing godliness with contentment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm aware as we go through this and I walk through this personally, there are areas in my life where I say I know your truth and honestly long to live in it, but my beliefs or my behaviors reveal something different. Last week I talked about how uh, oftentimes I run to television to look for comfort and an escape rather than running to you. Lord, I'm aware that in these moments when we come under conviction, one of two things can happen. We can harden our hearts against your word and continue to live in contradiction to it, or we can allow you to soften our hearts. We can acknowledge where we miss the mark and invite you to reshape and reorder our desires. Lord, we're going to sing a song right now that asks you to set a fire in our heart that makes a statement that says there's no place we'd rather be than in your love. Sometimes that's true for me, Lord. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are other places I would rather be than in your love. Like on a beach somewhere, on vacation, or in a new fancy car. I pray, Father, that you would invite us to be honest where our heart is at. And not to run from you, but to remember that because of Christ and his cross, we can acknowledge where we fall short, we can acknowledge our sin, And come to you not to be shamed or condemned, but to be embraced and to receive the promise that when we feel weak, you will be our strength. Set a fire in our hearts to love you more, Jesus. May this be our prayer. There is no place in the world that we would rather be. There is nothing that can give us contentment more than you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name. We pray. Amen.